1: Uh, radio check. Uh, radio check moder is to go, 50,0 times. Oh, that sound is
0: beautiful. Dragon. This is Bradley J on air control. W. B. Z.
1: Hello, who are you reading? Affirmative, i read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose.
0: B. Z, you're Jay Talking. We're live midnight 2 5. Oh, what a beautiful weekend. Hope you took advantage of the weather. It was so calming. I was actually able to relax a little bit today for the first time in like a year and a half. I felt this relaxation feeling. It was nice. And I don't really know what brought it on other than. The, the nice warm temperatures as the sun was going down. We'll talk about that later on. Our, uh, our guest, and I usually first hour and Jay talking, we have our guest is going to talk about the Civil War, Civil War partnership. And I know we have a lot of fans of history and especially the Civil War. We actually have one uh, gentleman who goes down either with his friends or his family to Civil War battlefields and listens for ghosts and hears them. Let's talk to Christian Keller, author of The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confeder- uh, Confederacy. Hello, Christian.
1: Hi, Bradley. How are you?
0: I am well, thank you. I'm glad you gave us a shout.
1: Let's just My get... pleasure.
0: In this case, in this interview, the first part is going to be the most detailed part. If you could take considerable time to flesh out each of these folks' early days, the route to their pinnacle, the battles of each, the style, the faiths really detailed take a lot of time and then we'll we'll meld the two later on
1: okay well uh both of these uh, gentlemen were born in virginia uh, robert e lee was the son of light horse harry lee who was george washington's chief of cavalry in the revolution and uh, a true blue blood uh virginia tidewater aristocrat uh jackson stonewall jackson as he would later become known Uh, was uh, the orphan of a hard scrabble farmer in the western part of the state and was raised by his uncle and uh, did not have the privileges that Lee had growing up. They both went to West Point, uh, and Jackson had to work extremely hard there uh, to finally graduate near the middle of his class. It was doubtful for a while if he would make it, but he did. And he uh, pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He's a true American success story in that regard. And Robert E. Lee had the natural ability uh, that propelled him quickly through West Point. They went at different times. Uh, Lee was older than Jackson uh, by about uh, 15 years or so. So they go to the academy at different times, but both of them serve in the Mexican War, where they both gain a great deal of experience in uh, how to lead men. Jackson was an artillerist, and uh, Lee served on uh, Winfield Scott's staff and learned a lot about command at that time. And uh, after the war, uh, these two men uh, went back to their respective careers. Uh, Both of them remained affiliated with the military, Jackson ultimately becoming a professor at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, and Lee, uh, staying in the very small antebellum U.S. Army and uh, in the 2nd uh, U.S. Cavalry that served out on the frontier, and uh, continued his, uh, his elevation. It was very hard to, to get high rank uh, in the regular army back then, and Lee managed to do it quickly, kind of establishing himself as one of the rising stars in the, in the U.S. Army. And when uh, secession came, uh, both these men went with their native state of Virginia, And listeners may be familiar with the story of Robert E. Lee, uh, that he, quote, couldn't draw his sword against his native state, unquote, uh, which is essentially true. Um, He went through a great deal of mental anguish to make that decision and break his oath of loyalty to the Union. Uh, For Jackson, it was not as hard of a a decision. Um, He justified it. Uh, in two ways. One is uh, loyalty to his home state and, and back then state was country more than the country was and uh, people need to remember that. Uh, it was a different definition of loyalty towards one's home than we have today. And uh, the other reason Jackson had really not a lot of uh, difficulty in, in seceding and, and going with Virginia was because he could justify it uh, through his uh, religious faith and he, he thought that this was the right move uh, according to God's will, How does that work? foreshadow
0: how, how does the religious faith justify the confederacy?
1: well, it, it only did for some people, but in Jackson's case, he believed it to be divine providence and it wasn't that he thought that the the confederacy was um, what was was something that that God had had purposefully put on this earth for him it was something that he believed he was led to do, to to secede and, and go with his native state, ultimately fighting against, uh, against the Union because it was God's will that he did it. The point is that Jackson uh, essentially saw himself as a servant uh, to the Lord in everything that he did and believed in this concept called divine providence, which was that uh, uh, God essentially controls everything Uh, and there is a modicum of, of human agency and decision-making, but the Lord has it all figured out. And if this is what, uh, what he wants, then, uh, far be it from Jackson to to resist that. It's just interesting. Very, very devoted to his faith.
0: Regardless of what he came up with, he would have justified it with his faith
1: unquestionably he did and and he did also believe likely that that his home was virginia and so those two reasons together were jackson's okay. main reasons
0: one thing that's interesting to hear from you is that there was there were people who struggled with breaking away from the union that struggled with siding with the confederacy i i don't i never pictured it that way but they had to they had to struggle many of them and then justify with themselves and with others and i guess if you're from virginia not too hard to do especially as you say back then your state was your country it was more like european situation a bunch of little countries than it was a federal situation correct
1: correct and and bradley there's a, a saying that we historians use uh that really helps clarify this and it's it's very simple people referred to the united states are before the civil war and after the civil war they referred to it as the united states is interesting uh... so that whole that that difference there of just that that little word change really gives you the idea of the impact and the change that the civil war made on people's minds uh, it, it it did uh... unify the country at least politically and it it finally settled this question that had been debated since the founding of uh, really, what has more power in our federal union—the national government or the states collectively—and uh, the federal government finally was able to exert its 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 supremacy as a result of the of the Civil War.
0: Very interesting. We have I have many more questions. If we could take a quick break and continue, that would be great. Thanks, W B Z. You Think we could listen to the radio or something? Radio. <laughs> radio. Now we can talk a little while. In a long time since you've talked.
1: Turn me on tonight. You picked
0: up radio waves.
1: The radio. The radio. The radio, Do you
0: want to talk? J talking. Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. We are with Christian Keller, and we're talking about his new book, The Great Partnership. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson and the fate of the Confederacy. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, know that we're live midnight to five weekday mornings. And if you're listening live, know that there is a podcast if you want to re-listen, listen to the whole thing, or share it. Christian, why the fascination with the Civil War? What makes it particularly interesting to folks? Is it simply because it occurred here on our soil?
1: Well, that's one reason, Bradley, but I think the biggest reason has to do with the fact that the Civil War creates and molds modern America. Uh, we're created by the Revolutionary War and uh, the, uh, the foundation of the Republic through the Constitution, but the Civil War is what makes modern America. And uh, you ask any number of historians who uh, uh, have studied our past, they're going to come to that same conclusion and uh, they will say this was the episode that, that really defined us as a country and uh, put us on the trajectory that, uh, that we're still on to this day. And, and there are good and bad results of that, uh, which you know, we could get into if you wanted to. There are, there are many different ways to interpret that. But I think Americans understand implicitly that the Civil War created modern America, uh, began the process of creating it at the very least, and uh, they just want to know more about how that process unfolded. And I should state right now before I go further that uh, any views I state on this program are my, my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. I have to put that disclaimer in there. Okay.
0: <laughs> now, this is a little bit about outside the scope of...
1: Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Probably most of your discussions, but, you know, we, we had one Civil War. Is there any chance we would have another one?
1: Well, uh, yeah, that's kind of beyond the scope, obviously, of my book uh, and of my, my expertise as a, as a professor uh, teaching uh, U.S. Army officers. Uh, I really doubt, Bradley, that we would ever get to that point, um, and, and uh, I'll kind of leave it at that. I'm optimistic about the ability of Americans to unify in times of crisis, um, and our history is, is filled with such examples where uh, from external threats, whether they be foreign powers or uh, even recently natural disasters, or internal threats like the Great Depression or uh, the, um, uh, the 2008 crisis, we come together when we have to. And as long as we keep doing that, I have a lot of hope that, that we're never, ever going to have a situation as bad as as the Civil War. and I will tell the listeners this. Uh, We have walked the dog of of internal difficulty politically so many times in this country. But uh, we're nowhere close right now to where we were in the late 1850s and in 1860 uh, when secession happens. We're nowhere close. And uh, it's important that you have a historical perspective when you try to judge and uh, think about modern events.
0: Good. Back to the... Lee and Jackson, talk, can you talk about some of the their, the battles that they dealt with that they led individually? Maybe in the Mexican War or where else specifically?
1: Well, part? they they weren't they actually didn't do too much uh, of great significance in the Mexican War. Uh, they were staff officers. Uh, Lee was a staff officer, and uh, Jackson was an artillery, young artillery officer. So they didn't make the decisions, but they took the experience out of the Mexican War and uh, allowed it to build them professionally. And in many cases, uh, the officers that lead both armies in the Civil War, regardless uh, if they're Union or Confederate or what theater we're talking about, Eastern, Western, or Trans-Mississippi, they really didn't necessarily know what it was that made them good or bad leaders. They kind of learned on the job. you got to remember that uh, the Civil War was a... A war uh, fought initially by primarily amateurs and, and volunteer soldiers and officers, who had to learn as they as they did it, and it was trial by error. And uh, unfortunately, lives were lost in the process, uh, all too often. Lee and Jackson found that they had the knack for military leadership, though, and. Uh, there was a lot of uh, conjecture that Jackson would, would fail. His cadets at VMI uh, called him Old Tom Fool. They never thought he would uh, amount to much, but uh, at the uh, First Battle of Manassas, or Bull Run as it's called in the north, uh, Jackson earned his nickname, Stonewall, for standing firm on uh, Henry House Hill uh, when most of the rest of the Confederate Army was in disarray and about to retreat, and they rallied around him. And that was the beginning of the turning of the tide in that very important first big land battle of the Civil War. Uh, he gains fame faster than Robert E. Lee does as a result, which is interesting because uh, Lee quickly is ensconced behind a desk in the Confederate White House in Richmond as Jefferson Davis's uh, uh, advisor, his military advisor, which is a very important position, but uh, he's not as well known uh, outside of Virginia. Uh, compared to Jackson. Uh, Only when uh, Lee rises to command of the Army Northern Virginia, which happens as a result of an accident, uh, the wounding of the general who commanded that principal Southern Army that defended Richmond, it wasn't yet called the Army Northern Virginia, that's the name Lee gave it, Uh, Joseph E. Johnston is wounded at Seven Pines, and there's no one for Davis to turn to uh, whom he trusts but Lee, whom he knows very well from having worked with them for the last several months. And so that's how Lee gets command of the Army, uh, right before the climactic uh, Seven Days campaign that, that essentially saves Richmond from an early capture by the Union Army that had been inching up the Virginia Peninsula. Once Lee gets command of that Army, Bradley, his star will continue to rise, and he will then surpass Jackson in reputation. Uh, But it took time for that to occur, and so when we're talking uh, May and June of 1862, uh, those men are fairly equal in the mind's eye of the people of the South, and Jackson is concluding his famous Valley Campaign, and uh, uh, his star is higher than Lee's at that time. It's not until Richmond is saved at the end of the great seven days that Lee's star then eclipses Jackson, but only slightly. And so you start to get this idea, which I write about in the book, that a team is starting to get created between these two men. And it's augmented by other personalities that the listeners probably have heard uh, about before. James Longstreet, uh, J.E.B. Stewart, who will become head of the, uh, of the Confederate Cavalry under Lee. Lee starts to mold a team of teams, a command team that is practically unbeatable. Uh, and one of the big arguments I make in the book is that this this team was uh, at once incredibly powerful, but also very fragile, and uh, I make some larger observations about the significance of, of good leadership, particularly at the strategic and, and higher levels. And this applies to all levels and types of leaders. It doesn't have to be necessarily uh, in the military, but it could work to government, uh, for uh, business leaders, for civic leaders, any kind of uh, strategic-level leader who's making big decisions for their organization that, that can result in, in its you know ultimate demise or its ultimate triumph. You've got to have a trusted set of advisors and a trusted set of operators that you can turn to to get the job done. Lee had built that team, and Jackson was foremost in it which is why his death was such a tragedy for Lee and for his ability to continue to win the great victories that he's going to win throughout 1862 once he assumes command. Jackson became his right-hand man and, moreover, became his chief advisor, uh, which is something that previous authors really haven't emphasized, but it, it's it's been there in the historical evidence for some time. But I think some folks just didn't want to recognize it for what it was, Um, They certainly, most previous authors, have not recognized the close bond that Lee and Jackson formed through their religious faith. Uh, Lee, uh, an Episcopalian, and Jackson, a Presbyterian, they come at their Christianity from different uh, backgrounds uh, and belief structures, but they both believe in this concept of divine providence that I mentioned, uh, in which the Lord controlled their actions and controlled the fate of the Confederacy and Man had free will to do good or bad, and if you did well, and if you followed what uh, the Lord wanted, then blessings would fall. Uh, If you did not, then you found out pretty fast by getting defeats, and the thing was that Lee and Jackson totally humbled themselves before the Almighty, but they feared that their country was not doing that, and that that would ultimately cause rebel defeat. Uh, so I get into this religious connection between the two of them, which no previous author has really done at all, um, and it's it's pretty compelling. Uh, again, it's been in the historical record for the last 160 years, uh, but um, I think a lot of people haven't really looked at it seriously to see just how much of a bond that, that, that religious underpinning created for those two men.
0: If they truly were controlled by Divine Providence and the South lost... What did that say to them about their efforts? Did they yeah, say it, 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 did they were misguided? Did they, you know? Did they, did they believe in divine providence when it was convenient, or when they lost, did they say, "What did we do wrong?" or "Was our mission wrong?"
1: That's exactly what what Lee said. Jackson will not survive to have those observations, as he uh, is shot accidentally by his own men on the night of May second, eighteen sixty three at the height of his uh, triumph at, at, at Chancellorsville. Uh, so he will die eight, year, eight days later from pneumonia uh, that uh, set in as a, of, uh, uh, as a result of a cold that he had and uh, the, the poor treatment that he ordered upon himself, um, not what his doctors recommended. So Jackson never gets the chance to, to have that reflection. Lee does, and, and Lee to his credit realizes that, uh, you know, from his perspective, that uh, God passed judgment on the Confederacy by allowing it to lose. And he does understand his role in its failure. Um, now, you know, this is not something that he wants to spend a lot of time talking about, but you can see, even during the war itself, as uh, it starts to turn against the South, uh, Lee will have statements to his, uh, his family in private letters Uh, and even to officials like Davis or or, uh, the various secretaries of war in Richmond, indicating uh, that uh, if only only the Confederate people would uh, uh, be a more godly people, uh, and words to that effect and statements like this, then uh, we might win some more victories, uh, and so forth. And ultimately, when the war is over, Lee accepts the verdict, um, as many listeners know, and... uh, uh, he's not happy the South lost, but he does see it as a judgment from God that this was this was divinely ordained and he accepts it. And, of course, this isn't the whole way to understand Robert E. Lee in the post-war period. Uh, there are many other ways we can do this, but this is a way.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, I do not get into that in the book, but my previous studies of the man and, and many other authors have gotten into this.
0: Perfect. That's perfect timing. We're going to take a quick break. If you have a little more time, I have a few more questions. We'll get a little news little quick weather and continue with christian keller on uh, the great partnership robert lee stonewall jackson and the fate of the confederacy
1: you'd be sure about the weather then but all that can stop us is the weather
0: weather. wbz yeah the weather we're looking at some rain for the next two days we we have a little karmic debt to pay for this nice weather we have here i guess uh, yeah, rain for two days, Taking a look at the uh, details, currently 66 degrees, rain overnight heavy enough to cause ponding, watch out for the ponding during the day today, uh, leftover shower early, turns partly breezy, sunny and pleasant, then Wednesday mostly sunny and nice, Thursday breezy and cooler with periods of rain and a thunderstorm, so today 77 and then Wednesday 70, uh, 75, and Thursday 66, kind of chilly let's continue with christian keller he's the author of the great partnership robert e lee stonewall jackson and the fate of the confederacy now you say that this stuff will affect this book will affect how readers think about confederate decision making how is that and how did we used to think of it prior to the book well,
1: I, that's a great question bradley and that uh really is kind of the the, the big question, isn't it? And uh, the the core that, uh, that that my book really tries to convey. So, in the past, most historians and and uh, uh, many readers will be familiar with uh, with you know some of these interpretations. Most historians have argued that Stonewall Jackson was simply uh, a a kind of a, a right hand man of Robert E. Lee on the battlefield itself. Uh, an operator or a tactician. Uh, There are three levels of war, and uh, we teach uh, at the strategic level at the Army War College. Uh, And uh, All three levels of war are important, but the most important is the strategic level. That's the war-winning level. If you get your strategy wrong in war, you might lose not only the war, but the country's sovereignty. Previously, historians have made the case that Jackson operated just at the lower two levels, at the tactical and at the campaign or the operational level. And I discovered in the course of my research that, indeed, he is thinking very strongly at the strategic level as soon as days after the First Battle of Manassas in July of 1861 and very quickly starts corresponding with Robert E. Lee in the spring of 1862 about what needs to be done uh, to win the war for the Confederacy, such as bringing a hard war into the North, such as what Sherman would do to the Deep South two years later. Uh, Jackson, for instance, wanted to burn out Pennsylvania's coal mines, uh, which uh, east of the Susquehanna supplied 75% 75% of the North's coal uh, at the time, which, of course, if they, if they had been burned out, that would have meant uh, northern steamships blockading southern ports uh, would have had to go home for want of fuel, and the railroads transporting northern armies into the south uh, would have had to stop because they had run out of coal and to think like this, to think logistically about what we call strategic means, that is definitely uh, a very high level of, uh, of thinking about war, and it's, it's truly at the strategic level. And Jackson, we think, uh, did advisely at this level as they became close throughout 1862, and they worked together through some of the great Southern victories in the Eastern Theater uh, such as uh, Second Manassas and uh, Jackson's capture of Harper's Ferry uh, in the Antietam Campaign, which itself was not a victory, but uh, uh, then at Fredericksburg and, of course, at Chancellorsville, which was their greatest collaboration. And during the winter of 62 to 63, when uh, the Confederate armies encamped outside of Fredericksburg, uh, Lee and Jackson spent a lot of time talking about the future. And I make a case in the book, and it's uh, based on, again, what the historical record provides us, that uh, Jackson and Lee together plan what will become the Pennsylvania or the Gettysburg campaign. The problem for the Confederacy is that Jackson does not survive to go with Lee into Pennsylvania in July of 1863 because, as I said, he is cut down accidentally by his own men and dies from uh, pneumonia eight days later. Uh, in on May 10th, and the Pennsylvania campaign begins in the middle of June. Um, and uh, there's some really compelling evidence that uh, Lee's second invasion of the North, as it is sometimes called, uh, was the brainchild of both uh, himself and Jackson, and uh, not just something that Lee uh, by himself came up with. Um, I also make the case uh, that uh, uh, the... Confederacy recognized as a whole the death of Jackson as a strategic turning point, uh, that the Confederate people, as well as the leaders in Richmond, newspaper editors all over the South, saw the death of Jackson as an incredibly heavy blow. Uh, Jefferson Davis himself called it a national calamity. Uh, Many other leaders repeated those exact words. Lee wept, which he never did. It was very rare for Lee to display emotion, but uh, he was so overwhelmed with the loss of this man who had become his close friend as well as his great partner uh, that uh, he was essentially unable to do anything for a couple days uh, in his tent just trying to get over the loss, but like a good soldier, he had to, and he did. Uh, but he will have to plan the Pennsylvania campaign without Jackson. And the death of Jackson, I make a strong argument, um, was really responsible for a cascade of, of events, such as reorganizing the Army in Northern Virginia, that set up the problems that Lee will encounter at Gettysburg. And it, it doesn't foreordain them. It doesn't mean that the Confederates are going to lose at Gettysburg because Jackson isn't there. Uh, it means that problems are set up that might not have otherwise existed and what i call a time stream was created that wouldn't have otherwise uh, presented itself um we historians have to be careful bradley when we go too far down the what if trail so i'm very careful about that in in the book in my final chapter but uh make no mistake about it at the time the confederate people saw the death of jackson as one of the great turning points of the war uh, they didn't think they were necessarily going to lose, but they became very fearful of the future with the death of Jackson, and partially because they knew what it was doing to Lee. Uh, and indeed, this was borne out to be true uh, in Pennsylvania at, at a small crossroads town called Gettysburg.
0: We're with Christian Keller of The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and The Fate of the Confederacy is the book. So it seems as though the two of them together, with the whole was greater than the sum of the parts, And this kind of speaks to what you get at in the book about the value of personal relationships and high command, not just this high command, but any high command.
1: Correct. Can you talk about personal relationships are, are so important Bradley Uh, for any leaders, leaders, any leadership uh, cadre in any organization um, I make a, a case. And, and I think many people would agree that, what really creates success uh, whether that be a military organization government organization or or a business is a level of trust a deep level of trust between the senior most leaders of that particular organization and anything might build that trust today and and i'm not saying it it has to be uh, a religious connection like it was for lee and jackson uh... which was accompanied by a very strong friendship but there needs to be something deeper than just professionalism uh... if indeed truly great things are going to be done because to truly do great things i am a believer and and having taught uh... military officers now for fourteen years i'm a very strong believer that a deep level of trust must exist must exist for senior most leaders to succeed and to be able to bring their organization to the height uh, of, of, uh, of success. And I think that's translatable regardless of time or place. So one of the reasons I wrote the book, quite frankly, was to provide some historical food for thought, a perspective, if you will, for modern leaders of any kind to kind of look back and see, well, this is how these guys built a team of teams. And they were assisted by these other gentlemen I mentioned, Longstreet and Jeb Stewart and a few others who who come and go throughout my narrative. But they were the two key players for the success of the main Confederate army in the East. And when Jackson is knocked out, it broke the team up. And one of the big points I would offer is uh, be very careful when you have a single point of failure in one person in a team and... Uh, try to build the bench. But as you do it, you have to ensure that the trust is there among all, all people uh, in that senior-most uh, decision-making bench so that if somebody has to succeed, someone who is knocked out, and today we hope it's not death, we hope it's retirement or some other reason, but uh, that the organization does not unduly suffer as clearly the Army in Northern Virginia did after the death of Jackson, and indeed the Confederate cause, because if the South was going to win uh, after 1862, it had to win in the East because the Western Theater deteriorated uh, so badly. Uh, And the other theater, the Trans-Mississippi, was, no pun intended, a lost cause by then. Lee knew this. Jackson knew this. And uh, most in the Confederacy sensed it, Uh, even just common citizens as far away as Texas knew. Uh, If they're going to win, it's going to be with Lee's army. Uh, And now Lee's army is taking this irrevocable uh, blow with the loss of Jackson. How can that command team recover in time? And I make the case that they can't. Uh, And uh, the people that Lee uh, raises up in place of Jackson, A.P. Hill, and Richard Ewell, do not perform to standards at Gettysburg. Uh, and uh, the fact they are there as Corps commanders is the direct result of the death of Jackson. Um, and, and that's a big point um, that, that I think we need to remember, and not just poo-poo and say, oh, well, you know, uh, it really doesn't matter. Jackson was dead, and uh, his, his death had no impact on the decision-making of Gettysburg. I take great issue with that. I think that his death set up the series of, 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 of possibilities uh, for the Confederates, most of which were not favorable. Interesting, uh, and uh, it it really was a pretty bad disaster with 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 the loss of Jackson.
0: I'm trying to take your concept of the command team and apply it to other situations and see who had command teams and who didn't and how it kind of turned out. You had John Kennedy had Bobby Kennedy. You could trust Bobby Kennedy. LBJ ag- agonized in the White House all by himself. It seemed over the over. Vietnam, and then you look at the current situation, and I'm trying to think, does this president, this is me just kind of thinking this through myself, does this president have a command team? Does he have anybody he trusts, can go back and forth with? And I'm, I'm not sure he does. That is interesting. May we take a break, and I have one more question for you. Okay. Thanks. It's WBZ. talking about
1: content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Talk, 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 talk. Okay, talk. How
0: Talking with Bradley J. WBZ. News Radio 1030. We're with Christian Keller, the great partnership. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the fate of the Confederacy. I have one more question. That is, was the South doomed to lose? Is there any way, any set of circumstances that could have taken place where, where they would have won? Or were they doomed due to lack of Industrial might, etc.
1: Well, Bradley, you're asking the $64,000 question, and one I was hoping you might ask. And uh, as a Civil War historian now for quite a, a while, uh, I am very happy to say that the Civil War could have easily gone the other way. Uh, happy in the sense that. Uh, I know that for a fact because when you study war at the theoretical level, which, uh, which we do at the War College, uh, we quickly come to a conclusion that almost nothing is written in stone ahead of time. Uh, you really cannot make any judgments about how something is going to go in a war. The great Prussian philosopher of war, Carl von Clausewitz, uh, writes that uh, chance and friction are intertwined with the making of war, regardless of time or place. And this holds true today, just as it as it did in his time, and certainly was true in the American Civil War. Um, James McPherson, a name many of our listeners will be familiar with, uh, once wrote that there were several great periods of contingency in the Civil War uh, in which, for a season, uh, the Confederacy had a chance to, to win its independence. Uh, and uh, you know, if, if McPherson thinks this is true, I think that's a pretty strong uh, vote in favor uh, of, of, of this theory. And, and I've long believed it, even before I read McPherson, when I was a young boy reading about the war and going to Gettysburg about every month because I grew up so close to the battlefield. It always impressed upon me just how close that, that battle actually went And uh, the interesting thing is, even if the Confederates had won at Gettysburg, it doesn't mean that they win their independence. It just means that a whole new series of branches and sequels would develop that uh, would have led to different outcomes. And I'd like to impress upon listeners that major point, that uh, once something happens in time that eliminates and closes off certain doors and certain avenues that, that would have otherwise occurred, and new ones then are created. And so if you approach the study of history with that in mind, which I call the theory of contingency, um, it helps you understand just how easily the South could have pulled this one off. Uh, there are so many examples I could give you, but but uh, I'll give you one uh, which is just absolutely startling. Uh Robert E. Lee lost one of his uh, orders uh, during the, uh, the Sharpsburg campaign or the Antietam campaign in the fall of 1862. He didn't lose it himself, but mysteriously one of his orders from his headquarters that detailed the location of all of the components of his army prior to the Great Battle of Antietam was lost by some courier, uh, and uh, it was picked up by pure luck by a Union soldier, whose superior officer could recognize the signature of Lee's aide from a pre-war acquaintance. And this verified its accuracy, and it made it the whole way up to the Union commanding general at the time, George B. McClellan. And with that, the whole course of the Antietam campaign has changed, but it was just a a stroke of bad luck. Most historians would argue that without the, the loss of what's now known as the Lost Orders, Uh, McClellan would have continued moving slow in his pursuit of Lee, and Lee would have been able to uh, coalesce his army somewhere in the Sharpsburg area and then move north uh, up towards Hagerstown and possibly into Pennsylvania. This time Jackson would have been with him because this is uh, in uh, the fall of 62, and who knows how history would have changed. Uh, It was a very, very important time in the war because this is before the Emancipation Proclamation has come out, and england is teetering on the brink of recognizing confederate independence uh... and uh... who knows what reports of, of, of uh, a southern invasion of pennsylvania in the fall sixty two uh... would have done to british intentions at that at that very uh, critical time uh... let alone if if uh, lee and jackson had scored a victory in that campaign that's just that's just one of many examples i could give you of how close it came now, one thing I will say is once Lincoln gets reelected in 1864, at that point, it's going to be really hard for the Confederacy to pull it out. So there are certain points in this war, as in any war, when the, the likelihood of a certain conclusion is so strong that it, it's, it's almost inconceivable that another uh, ending could have occurred. So you do get to these points in the Civil War where the the might of the Union, as you put it, is is just so strong that there's no way the South can pull it out. But I think that 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 period uh, is not until the last six to seven months of the war. Uh, I think up until then, the Confederacy had many opportunities. There was even a small Confederate army that, that technically sieged Washington. Uh, in July 1864 that Lee had sent up the Shenandoah Valley. This is after Jackson's death. And were it not for uh, President Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant figuring out that there was a threat to the Capitol, there's a chance that that small Confederate army that late in the war could have entered the Capitol City and totally upended the Union War effort. Um, There are are other examples, as I said, that that, uh, uh, we should never look at history as something that was guaranteed to occur the way that it did wow then, and i would invite listeners to think like that because it really will make it more valuable to them
0: you know your example of the lost order shows us this strategy tactics operations and luck i really appreciate the uh i appreciate you sent me the book it's great and i appreciate you taking a full hour here on the program i hope you had fun it's christian keller and the book we've been talking about is The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. Thank you, sir.
1: Hey, thank you very much, Bradley. Okay. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. It's WBZ. And oh, we have a minute to uh, to kill here. I won't really kill it. You know, I, I'm going to make you feel better. We uh, we talk about what a difficult period we're in, but somehow over the weekend I I had kind of a flash of... <laughs> epiphanic flash on why things aren't so bad after all. Maybe maybe you will, uh, would like to hear that. Maybe you are strung out from, from the tensions we, we see on the TV and hear about all the time on the radio. But I all of a sudden had this realization that I think helps me and will help you too. Also, I know you've heard me railing against electric scooters, e-scooters. Well, I've actually evolved as they say on that topic. So I'll tell you about that too. And much, much more. Rob Brooks is our man tonight until Jay Gates comes in. It's WBZ. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: (gasps)